0: Uh, we're going to be in Ezra, chapter number 10 this morning, and uh, we're going to be working our way through. We'll get to verse 11, I think, Lord willing, this morning. But before we start, I want to just tell you about a meeting that occurred of four pastors, four, four preachers, who got together, and as, as preachers and pastors do, we, we get together and, and complain about the congregation. No, <laughs> no we, we don't, we don't, we don't. Uh, We do, we don't. (laughs) Uh, Four pastors that got together, and um, as part of that, they just started chatting, as you do. And uh, we're talking, and talking about, you know, how things were going in ministry, talking about the difficulties. And then one pastor said, you know the congregation, they come and they tell us about their their woes and their troubles and their burdens. And and sometimes they'll come and say, Pastor, you know, I've fallen into sin. And they'll tell us about the sin that's besetting them. And we'll lead them in counsel to confess that to God because confession's good for the soul. And then this pastor said, why don't don't we do that? You know, why don't we take this opportunity when we're sat together to just have a time of confession and confess, you know, anything that's Plaguing us in terms of sin—that's just, you know, besetting our lives and we can't shake it. So the first pastor said, I, "You know, I'll go first. You know, I'm leading the charge here." And he said, "I've got to confess that, uh, you know, I struggle a little bit with gambling, and unfortunately, I squander quite a bit of, of my money away." The second pastor said, "You know, I I, I uh, struggle with uh, cigars. I've just got to—I used to smoke and I, and I stopped that, but." It's cigars, and I'll just have a cigar every so often, take myself off to a little secret hidden place, and I'll have a cigar. The third one came forward and said, you know, I've got a terrible drinking problem. The the congregation don't know it. Can you turn that down a little bit, please? The congregation don't know it. They know nothing about it, but I've got a hidden drinking problem, and it's what gets me through, and I can't shake it, I can't get rid of it. The fourth pastor was silent. Said nothing, head down. The other pastor said, Well, come on. What's your? You must have something. You know, everybody has something that's that's in their lives that they can't shake and they can't get rid of it. Some kind of sin that they can't get rid of. The pastor was silent. The other pastors pushed him and said, Come on, I've confessed that I'm a gambler. The other one's confessed that he's a smoker, and the third one said, I've confessed my hidden drinking problem. Don't leave us hanging. What's your sin? The pastor lifted his head and he said, it's gossiping and I can't wait to get out of here. (laughs) We looked last week, didn't we? How confession is good for the soul. It's good for the saints. But it should lead to something. Confession isn't just words. Here's my dirty great secret. Here it is and I'm off to continue on in it. Confession has a calling, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. You see, confession's call doesn't leave us where we are. Confession's call calls us on to more of God in a walk with him that means changing or doing something about that which we have confessed. There are many today that subscribe to a system that you come and you confess your sins to a priest and then you're absolved of that and off you go and what you do for the next week is you build up those sins again until it's time to go and confess those sins and get rid of those sins. Now, confession of sin is into God and God alone. Absolutely. But... Confession's calling isn't simply just to blurt it out and then go your merry way and go about your business like it's all sorted and it's all fixed. No, confession's calling is to action. And if we just leave confession at words, then it's a dead, meaningless confession. It has no substance to it. And God takes no pleasure in it. Yes, God wants us to come and confess to him. Yes, God wants us to pour out our hearts to him. Absolutely he does. But he wants to see his children then rectify what's wrong in their life. Not to go and rinse and repeat and go round and round and round. Would you want that for your child? No, absolutely not. You'd want them to move on, to take the words of their confession, that great moment where they said, you know what, I've been doing this and I've been doing this wrong for so long, but now I'm going to change. That's what you would want to happen. But that's confession's Calling. Confession just doesn't leave us to our own devices. It calls us onwards and upwards to God and in His work. So we're going to have a look at Ezra this morning as we've we've dealt with him over the last few weeks. We've had this great prayer of intercession in chapter 9. We've had his confession. We've had this move of God as the people in the temple area have came, men, women, and children, remember, pouring out their hearts, confessing to God. But there is action required. And we're going to see now how confession's calling comes upon the people and how their response is from the leadership down to what confession calls them to do. So turn with me please just to verse number two which is where we'll start this morning and we'll see confession's calling acknowledged. Verse two says this and Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel the son of of one of the sons of Elam Answered and said unto Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. So here we're introduced to Shekaniah. And, you know, we've talked about the spirit of confession that's moving amongst the people. And Shekaniah is one that has been affected by. By it. And, you know, so you've got this great somber scene taking place in the temple area where, you know, people are, 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 are grieving in their sin before God. They're confessing their sin before God. And in the midst of that, up steps this man, Shechaniah, and he addresses uh, Ezra about the sins of the people. And he says this to Ezra We have trespassed against our God. That word trespass there is, means in, uh, to violate one's legal obligations. To act unfaithfully is a good way of thinking about that. So when, it, when uh, 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 Shekinah comes to Ezra, just like Ezra has acknowledged, he says, we have acted unfaithfully. Isn't that a contrast to the faithful God who never acts unfaithfully? Absolutely it is. God's people, all of us. I have a perpetual habit of acting unfaithfully towards God. Shekinah comes forward and he identifies with the trespass and he puts himself in with the nation. And he says, We have trespassed against our God. We have acted unfaithfully. <coughs> Why? We've taken strange wives or pagan wives of the people of the land. That's the offense. That's why they've acted unfaithfully. And this is beautifully tied into the truth that in the Old Testament, Israel is the wife of Jehovah, the wife of God. That's the relationship. In Exodus at Mount Sinai, when the Mosaic law is given, the covenant, that's a marriage contract between Jehovah, God, and Israel. And, you know, the, the, the law is given there and the people have to respond. Everything that you say we will do. And the people said, yes, we will do it. And they enter into contract, a unique relationship with God. But time and time again, they had proved themselves unfaithful. They had run off to foreign gods. And here they have foreign wives, pagan wives, those that are not Uh, of the nation of Israel. And that is a sin according to the Levitical law, according to the contract, the marriage contract that uh, God has entered into with Israel. There are conditions upon that. Now, we're going to deal a little bit later on that this is the Old Testament economy so if you're having trouble at home, don't be using this as an excuse to try and get rid of your strange wife. (laughs) This is not what this is about. This is, this is with Israel and uniquely to Israel. Um, but there's acknowledgement. That's what starts. There's acknowledgement here from Shechaniah. And he says, We, he's identifying himself uh, in amongst this sin, this trespass. Now, this is, um, this is important and tells us something about this man. Because when we look a little bit into this, and we look into Shechaniah, we see that he's a man of tremendous courage to step forward and identify himself in with the sin of the nation. Because here's the thing, when we next week, Lord willing, have a little tiny look at, at the kind of list of those that are identified, and it's not exhaustive, but the list that's identified, Shekaniah, identified of those that have taken strange wives, pagan wives, Shechaniah isn't in there. He's not to be found. But if you turn to verse 26 of chapter number 10... Verse 26, and if you remember when we read from verse number 2 that I was the son of Jael, one of the sons of Elam, you read in verse 26 of chapter 10, these are those that have been identified as those that have taken strange wives. And it says, verse 26, And of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zachariah, Jael, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Eliah. Whose name is in there? It begins with J. Who is he? Shekinah's father. Father. Verse 2, chapter 10, Shechaniah the son of Jael, one of the sons of Elam. But here who, the people that are identified and those that have taken strange wives are Shechaniah's father and his uncles. So another five of the sons of Elam have been identified of those that have taken strange wives. But Shekaniah isn't there. He's not found. What then does this tell us about this man? It tells us that he is willing to put, and I want you to note this and mark this, he is willing to put the divine standards before family relationships. And that's hard. And that's tough. It's tough to stand upon God's word when others in your family aren't and you know that to take that stand upon God's word, upon that position, is going to make it difficult for you, for those that do not accept that position or are living contrary to the position you're taking upon God's word. It's difficult. It's hard. But here Shekinah steps up. He's not guilty of it, but he identifies with the sin of it, and he steps up and he puts God first. What a man. What a man. You want to see revival in the church? This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. What did Jesus teach? Love him. Hate others. That word hate means loveless. Christ is teaching you, you've got to put me first. You've got to put his word first. And sometimes that costs, sometimes that hurts, but it's always the right thing if it's God's thing. That's it, That's it in a nutshell. This man, you know, despite the difficulty it's going to put him under, you know, he's going to be labelled a traitor in the family camp, isn't he? <coughs> Can you imagine his father looking on, going, where's he going? Where's he going? Where's he going? He's going to see Ezra. What's he saying? What? That I've sinned? That I'm doing wrong here? Hard. But he does it. Sin has to be acknowledged and sin has to be identified and ultimately this is what uh, uh, Zechaniah does. He makes his stand, he comes before Ezra and he doesn't say they. He says we have trespassed, we have acted unfaithfully. Not to each other. He says to our God, to our God. This is just like King David in Psalm 51, and you know we've touched on this, this great psalm of, of repentance, of penitence, of confession. In Psalm 51, verse 4, David says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Here he's referencing the sin uh, where he, he took another's wife and was responsible for the death of that man's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And they have been affected. But David acknowledges that the sin was first and foremost against God. And that's what the people are identifying. That's what Shekinah is identifying. That's what the prodigal son identified as he makes his way back to the forgiven father. You know, I think that's so, so mistitled that it's not about the son. It's about the father. He is the central piece in that story, that parable that Jesus teaches. It's not about the son just coming to his right mind and coming back. It's about the willingness of the father to forgive him. He is the centerpiece. And the prodigal son, as he's coming back, Luke 15, verse 18, says, I will arise, go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. What's the principle? Sin, first and foremost, trespass against God before it ever touches others. That's who we're answerable to first. Every one of us. Whether you're saved or not this morning, you're answerable and accountable to God first and foremost. Our transgression is against him. Now there are others that will be affected by that. ourselves our family, our friends, whoever it may be, or whatever it is we're talking about. So there's acknowledgement. Confession's calling is acknowledged in verse 2. Shekinah comes forward at great expense to himself and he says, we've trespassed against our gods. We've taken strange wives of the people of the land. And then there's this little bit added on to that sentence. And this is beautiful. It's beautiful. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning This thing. There's hope in Israel concerning this thing. And you know, we can take this and we can apply this all over the gospel. You know, no matter where we're at, no matter what we've done, there's hope. There's hope concerning this thing. But it does take acknowledgement, it takes acknowledgement of the sin, of the trespass, of acting unfaithfully, it takes acknowledgement that we need to come to God because we've sinned against him first and foremost. And when we do that, there is hope because God is faithful where we are not. God is willing. He is the forgiving Father. And we go back to that parable of what we call the prodigal son and the father is waiting, he's waiting for the son to come back, how beautiful is that that's the gospel that God is waiting for you to come to him this morning you think about that who is man that you are mindful of him O Lord that you would wait for us my goodness me Grace, grace, grace. And although Israel had fallen into sin, although they trespassed, although they acted unfaithfully against God, Shekinah realizes that God is a faithful and just God and there is hope because the people now have a spirit of confession. You see, confession's calling was acknowledged. Then... Moving on, verse 3 to 8. Let's read that together. We're going to see that confession's calling is action. So, yes, acknowledge it, but now we have to move to action. Verse 3. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord, of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We will also be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Then arose Ezra and made the chief priests, the Levites and all Israel to swear that they would do according to this word. And they swear. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Joan, the son of (laughs) Elishebib. I don't know, who cares. And when he came thither, He did eat no bread, nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that have been carried away. And then he made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity, that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem. And that whosoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the prince and the elders, All his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those who had been carried away. So confession's calling was acknowledged and then straight away it's been action. There's a plan put in place. Straight away, verse 3, Now therefore, let us make a covenant, let us make an agreement, a binding agreement with our God to put away or send away all the wives and the children of those wives according to the counsel of my Lord. Referencing Shechaniah there. So here we have an action plan put in place. There's a, a contractual covenant that is going to be put together between God and the people, or the people in God, really, in this case. They're going to come to God. They're going to swear before him. They're going to make an agreement before him to say that we are going to separate ourselves. We're going to put away, we're going to send away these strange uh, wives. And we've seen this before in the life of Israel. We've seen it in two of the great reforming kings of Judah. Turn to 2 Chronicles with me, please chapter 29 2 Chronicles chapter 29 verse 10 Hezekiah greatest king of Judah 2 Chronicles 29 verse 10 says now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us And Hezekiah was a great leader he was a good king And then we have Josiah, turn to 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 3. Again, the the nation, you know, Judah, the southern kingdom, had transgressed. They'd acted unfaithfully towards God. 2 Kings 23 verse 3. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of their heart, with all of their soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. And this is what Shekinah is doing. He's, he's getting back to basics, getting back to just getting right before God and saying to God, we're going to do what you have asked us to do. Because you know best. Shekinah's call and Ezra 10 is for a covenant to be made. And the terms are clear. Put away or send away all the wives and such as are born of them. So I'd send away the wives and send away the children. This may seem harsh. On face value it does seem harsh. I guess maybe you could say that it's best for the children to be with their mothers rather than be left. But regardless, if it's from God, we have no right to decide whether it's fair or just. That's not our remit. That's not our position. We are not God. He is the lawmaker. He is the one that is above all. And he has said, send them away. Therefore, whether we think this is harsh or not, we have to, if we adopt the basic position that we are sinful, fallible, finite human beings, and God is above all and beyond all, that his ways are far higher than our ways, we have to adopt the position that God was absolutely right. That his will and his word is perfect. Whether we like it, whether we agree with it, whether we think it's harsh or not, doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. And the world gets itself in a pickle, the church gets itself in a pickle, when we try and determine what parts of what God said we want to keep because we like, and what parts of God's word we want to abandon because they don't just sit right with how we want to live. That is foolish. It is folly. Because God is God. And we are who we are. And God forbid we should determine whether God's right or wrong. That's such a switch round. you know what that is? That's a lie that was sold to our spiritual or physical first parents, Adam and Eve. When the devil came along and said what? You can be as That's Humanism 101. And we've bought this lie. So we can read this and think, well, you know, this this seems uh, harsh, but it's not. It's just the people that are called into this relationship with God being reminded that this is what God has asked for, and now they have to come up with a covenant to basically say, "We're going to do what you've asked us to do, and we're going to be committed to that." This is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter seven. There are other references in Deuteronomy around divorce and remarriage, but this is not reference in this. I believe this is something different. This is uh, Deuteronomy. chapter 7 verse 3 where it says this neither shall I make marriages with them thy daughter shall not give to his son nor his daughter shall I take to thy son this is about keeping Israel pure and away from the influence of the outside world because God knew that that influence would come in it would corrupt and it would take them off mission because that's what happened it would take them off mission and it did take them off mission Absolutely it did. They were in the captivity in Babylon because of their idolatry. Because they'd allowed this to come in. They'd allowed things to creep in. That God had chosen them as a nation, given them special privilege and said, I am picking you, not because there's anything special about you, not because you're great, not because you're many, because I have sovereignly decided that I am going to use you, reveal myself to you, enter into covenant with you, and you're going to be the ones that are going to take the light Of the truth of the one true God to the world. And they'd abused it. They'd abused it. And God knew that if they'd let foreign influences come in and pollute, they would go off mission. They would break their covenants. They would fall into idolatry. And God would have to judge them. See, God knows best. God knows best. And the only way to rectify the issue was radical action. That word radical means to cut at the very root, not deal with the surface. You know, if you like gardening, God bless you. I can't stand it. I can't because I'm rubbish at it. And, I, and it takes a lot of work. You know, to have a lovely garden, God bless you. Because it allows people like me that don't have lovely gardens to come and say, Oh, that's a lovely garden. And then walk away and let you do all the work. But weeding is a nightmare, isn't it? Weeds, weeds, weeds. And you can cut the top of them, but they'll be up. You have to get to the root. You have to get radical. And that's what's going on here. This is radical stuff. The, the people of Israel that have taken those strange wives have to say to them, No, you're done. You have to go take the children with you. It's got, we're done. We're done. That's radical. But that's what was needed. And God knew that's what was needed. Because he knows that if left unchecked, what happens if any remnant of this is left, it's going to what? It's going to grow and it's going to fester and then it's going to manifest itself again. You can see this in the life of Israel. That they don't deal with it at root level. And it comes back and it comes back again. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. This is what happens. And this is what God knew would happen. This is why he said all the way back in Deuteronomy, all the way back when the law was given, that you're not to take strange wives. You're not to do it. 1 Kings chapter 11. Here we go. Solomon. I mean Solomon. Right? Son of a godly father. He knew God. He'd been blessed by God, hadn't he? He'd been given wisdom, supernatural wisdom as a gift. But yet, look—it happens at the towards the end of his life. First, one, one Kings eleven. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites. Sidonians and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. They'll take you off mission. They'll take you off me. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as it was the heart of David his father. Now, I think we need to read these next verses very somberly because this is heartbreaking. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Do you want me to tell you who that is? That's Satan dressed up pictured up that's him to the goddess of Zidonians, after Milcom the abomination of the Ammonites let me tell you that is that's him and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as David his father did. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh and the abomination of Moab. That's an altar for Satan. In the hill that is before Jerusalem. What hill is that? Come on, you've walked down it. In Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives. That's the hill that is before Jerusalem. That's the heavenly runway. Christ came down, didn't he? Triumphal entry. Ezekiel tells us that the glory, the manifest presence of God, the Shekinah glory, left that way. When Christ returns, he comes back that way. On this very hill, Solomon, son of David, gifted by God with supernatural wisdom, had a godly heritage, had a father that had a heart after God, yes, made mistakes, but turned to God that had instructed him and taught him the ways of God, is on the Mount of Olives. At this point in Israel's history, the temple is there, Solomon's temple is there in all its Glory. At this point in Israel's history, the presence of God is in the holy place. And on the Mount of Olives, the son of the greatest king of Israel has built an altar to Satan. And what is he doing there? He's sacrificing children. Maybe not him personally. But he's allowing it. That's what happens here. That's what Molech was. He was the child leader. And that's what they used to do. Verse 8. And likewise he did for all his strange wives. Which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. What's happened here? If you'd have spoke to Solomon at the start of his reign as the temple's being built and you'd said to him, one day, Solomon, this is what's going to happen to you. One day you're going to find yourself not building a temple, not building the walls, not building the nation of Israel, but you're going to find yourself building an altar to Satan where you're going to allow your wives to throw children into the fire and sacrifice them on to a false God. I'm sure Solomon's response would be never in a million years. But what happened? How did he get to this point? Scripture's clear. He allowed strange wives. He allowed those with pagan practices to come in and influence. And the influence grew and it grew and it grew to capitulation, to compromise. And what happens? You now have this abomination in the very presence of God right in front of his face, as it were, by one of what should have been the greatest king Israel ever had. Why? Because of strange wives. You see, when God warned all those years ago in Deuteronomy, when he said, and there's instructions given for the king that they shouldn't multiply wives as well, he knew what he was talking about. God knows. He doesn't put these things in place, these instructions to stop us enjoying life. He puts them in so we can enjoy life. We say, oh, we're in a society where we don't want boundaries, we don't want rules. Here's the reality. We function better with boundaries and rules. And everybody has boundaries and rules in their lives. They're trapped by something. They just don't realise it. But when you come to God, you have boundaries and, and rules, but they're freedom, they're grace. They help you live a life abundant and full of joy. Can you imagine if Solomon had have applied this truth to put away strange uh, wives to his practice, to his life, how the nation would have been blessed? If the leader had have followed the leader's guide, things would have been different. And so it is for us today. So God in Ezra 10, it's clear, it's radical, but it needed to be. This practice, this, this influence had to be cut out of the nation's life. Shechaniah calls upon Ezra. Verse 4, Ezra 10, he says, Arise, for this matter belongs to thee, We will also be with thee, be of good courage and do it. So you think, well, Shekinah is dropping out here a little bit, isn't he? He's come forward with this great bold statement. And he said, you know, this is what we must do, right, Ezra? Go and do it. But it was Ezra's responsibility as a leader of that nation. It starts with the leadership and it works down. And Shekinah says, don't worry, we're with you. And that's what's needed. You know, for every Ezra, there needs to be a Shekinah. For every leader that makes a stand, there needs to be the people with him that stand behind him and say, you know what, that is what God says. That is what's needed. We need to be radical. There needs to be reform, and we're with you. Unfortunately, and a lot of church age application, when people do, and we looked at the movements that have gone astray from the word of God. When people do this and leaders step up, unfortunately they find the people aren't behind them. Or maybe behind them with a knife. But <laughs> and they leave them out to dry. But the people of God should be behind the leaders that God has put in their lives. And together they should make a stand upon God's word. And that's what's happened. Ezra arises, verse 5. Then arose a rise, uh, Ezra. Action is taken place, verse 6. Then Ezra rose up before the house of God. Work is being done. Then we get to verse 7 and 8. There's a decree made, a proclamation throughout Judah. And all the children of the captivity, they should gather themselves together and unto Jerusalem. And if they didn't come in three days, they're going to lose Everything they have, they're going to be cut off from the nation. They're not messing about. Time is of the essence. This is radical change. This is radical reform. Confession's call is truly actioned. Yes, it's acknowledged, but it needs to be actioned. And then finally, just quickly, verses 9 to 11 Confession's call is announced. Verse 9, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth hour and the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter, and I love this little bit, and for the great rain. This this month is November, December. It's the wettest and coldest time of year. And I I don't think this is a coincidence And really just highlights of the the gravity of the situation, the depressing nature of the situation, of how far Israel has fallen. But they're gathered, people have come, they've responded. And then in the midst of this, verse 10, Ezra stands up and says, "Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the transgress or trespass, sorry, of Israel so here Ezra stands up in the middle and he declares he declares the fact of people's sin you've transgressed he declares the nature of it you've taken strange wives and he declares the consequence of it to increase the trespasses of Israel here Israel is being a good leader he's telling people the truth in love then verse 11 the remedy Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers to do his pleasure and to separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Here's confession's calling. This is repentance to action. Something needs to be done. It's not simply being sorry for sin but turning from sin to God. That's repentance. It's turning to God, not just saying, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, God, I'm walking away. But turning to him and walking towards him is the only one that can cleanse you, the only one that can save you, and the one that ultimately you have trespassed against. So confession's calling has been laid bare to Israel. There's an acknowledgement that leads to action. And in turn, the demands of true confession are revealed and announced to the people. They have to separate themselves from the strange wives. They have to put them away. They have to send them away. And they have to get back to boldness and braveness in God. Ezra again has shown us that he's a bold leader. He's a brave leader. He's a man that is after God's heart. and He stands up. He says the difficult things. He does the difficult things. He knows the way, shows the way, and goes the way. And behind him, he had men like Shechaniah that had his back, that knew and acknowledged the sin, even though they weren't partakers of that sin, even though that, that acknowledging it would cost them greatly within their family dynamic. Ezra had people behind him that wanted to do what God wanted them to do. And the nation was called to repentance. How does the nation respond? We're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. But what about us? What about us this morning? What about the church? What is this calling us to do? Now again, I've said that this is Old Testament context. This is under the law. So this has nothing to do with Trying to get rid of your wife in in this context. But there is a spiritual application. What is the spiritual application? (coughs) Simply this. If confession is calling, maybe to you this morning, then we have to acknowledge it and answer it with action. That's what we're being taught from the Old Testament this morning. (coughs) To apply to us. As the church and as individuals before the Lord, if confession is calling, then we have to acknowledge and we have to answer it with action. That's what God wants from us this morning. So, what's it to be? Are we going to answer God? Are we going to say, You first, God, and me second? Are we going to leave this place once again? and say, no, God, it's me first, and it's you second. If you do that this morning as you leave this place, you will reap what you sow. And God, in his great love, is trying to protect you from that this morning. He loves you, he cares for you, and he wants you to come to him. Confession is calling. Are you going to acknowledge it? And are you going to action it? And be who God wants you to be.